Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom's with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wineskin will burst, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So this week, we are going to be talking about the third controversy dialogue. If you remember, the first concerned Yeshua's claims, or you may call him Jesus, that's fine with me. Um, the first concerned Yeshua's claim to be able to declare sins forgiven. The second revolved around who should and should not be included in table fellowship with a righteous man. And this week, the subject is to fast or not to fast. That is the question. To summarize, chapter 1 of Mark was all about commissioning and Yeshua's battles against the spiritual forces of darkness in the form of demons and sickness. Starting in chapter 2, he starts having to contend with opposition from people, you know, which was entirely absent in chapter 1. He didn't get any sort of human resistance. On the contrary, people were just loving on him. So, in, this, in the first controversy, they wouldn't even challenge him verbally, out loud, just in their thoughts, okay? In the second, they question his disciples instead of him. It's kind of like got passive-aggressive, okay? This week, they're going to up the ante by speaking to him personally on the surface, not about his own behavior, but uh, about that of his disciples. They still weren't willing to come at him head on, okay? This is still kind of passive-aggressive behavior. <laughs> Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of our Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids of All Things. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com and all the books that I've used, uh, I have a list, and I can't remember if it's on episode one uh, or episode two's transcript. I thought I knew it now, and I meant to go and check. <laughs> I forgot to check. Alrighty then. So fasting in the first century, and before that even, um, in first century Judaism. Okay, let's talk about this. Now first we're going to go to scripture. Never a bad place to start. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 4 through 5. 
but we're going to ignore the Yom Kippur references because this situation in Mark has zero to do with that kind of commanded fast day. We're going to be talking about fasting for mourning or repentance. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for those 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? So, we have two fasts mentioned here, and we also know of at least two other communal fast days being observed traditionally by the nation. Uh, the fast of the seventh month is obvious. That would be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonements on Tishri 10, when the entire nation is commanded to fast forever. I mean, not fast forever. Fast on that day forever. Gosh, that could get really serious really quick, couldn't it? But Zechariah also mentions a fast in the fifth month, and you might not know about it, so let's quickly review. The fast of the fifth month would be on the ninth of Av, which commemorates the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem and is also associated with the destruction of the second temple as well, uh, according to the timetable set forth by Josephus, who was actually there. Of course, they wouldn't be fasting because of the destruction of the second temple because, obviously, it hadn't happened yet. Um, just like Yeshua wasn't preaching from the Gospels because they hadn't been written yet. He was preaching from his preaching and they wrote it down. You knew that. <laughs> According to Ta'anit 68a through d, which is a commentary on the Mishnah Ta'anit 4-6, which the entire tractate concerns fasting and prayer, there were five reasons for fasting on the 17th of Tammuz in the fourth month and four reasons for fasting on the 9th of Av. That's in the fifth month. In addition, we have the fast on the 3rd of Tishri because of the murder of Gedaliah the governor. And um, on you can find that in Jeremiah. And on the, I think, yeah, Jeremiah talks about it and Second um, Chronicles. And on the 10th of Tevet, in observance of the fall and taking of uh, Jerusalem, which is different than the taking of the Temple Mount, the destruction of the Temple, obviously, because... Um, it was a lot easier to get Jerusalem than to get up on the Temple Mount and take that. Because that was, that was an amazing fortress. All right. So, quickly. On the 17th of Tammuz, they believed that Moses had broken the first tablets in response to the Golden Calf incident. Um, the Talmud offering, the twice daily offering in the Temple, was interrupted by the Roman siege and never returned again. Of course, that's ob obviously, some of these are after the the time of the Pharisees here. Uh, the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Romans. Again, that was after. Uh, Apostemus burned a Torah scroll and an idol was set up in the temple. It's not clear historically who set up the idol, however, or when or who Apostemus was. Okay, this could have been after, this could have been before. On the 9th of Av, the disastrous result of the Ten Bad Spies report fell upon Israel, supposedly, as they were told that they would die in the wilderness. The destruction of the First and Second Temples occurred on this day. We know that historically and biblically. Uh, also, after biblical times in the second century, that day was associated with the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt 
and the raising of Jerusalem before it was rebuilt as a fully realized pagan city called Aeola Capitolina. Now, the commentaries to Ta'anit uh, 1, 4 through 6, I use the Kahati, also tell us that the uh, Torah scholars fasted on Mondays and Thursdays for various reasons, but especially concerning the need for rain. That's not hard to understand. And uh, in a time where there were no irrigation pipes or, you know, you couldn't do sprinklers or, or everything. And, you know, they needed the rain. They needed the rain. So um, now let's talk about the uh, disciple-teacher relationship because that's important understanding this too. This is one of the very possible, positive things that the Jews picked up from Hellenism because it isn't Jewish or biblical in origins. The whole idea of young men binding themselves to a teacher of some sort to whom they were to show more preference than to their own earthly fathers, okay? It's so important to understand the difference between what is pagan and what is cultural. There's nothing pagan about having a teacher and being a disciple. It's just good administration. It's kind of like the sons of the prophets, but obviously very different in scope. They weren't Torah scholars, the sons of the prophets. They, they were learning to sit in the council of God and deliver his words to the people. They didn't have Torah scrolls just laying around to use. And frankly, in the days of the prophets, um, especially the latter prophets, Torah scrolls were few and far between and all but lost in some cases. It wasn't until well after the exile that Torah study became something to do and focus on. And, of course, you know, we see the creation of the synagogues in Hellenistic times um, as well. So the Greeks did contribute positively to Judaism, but also very negatively. Their way of thinking is what was behind the shift from seeing Torah as a way of living righteously and in harmony into more formalized, over-the-top law codes which I believe led to much of the animosity between the Jewish factions during the centuries leading up to Yeshua's birth until after the destruction of the Second Temple when, you know, one group emerged victorious and that was the Pharisees um, and that, that became the later rabbinic movement. Okay. They are different. The uh, rabbinic movement likes to put its roots in the Pharisees while not um, covering up the gratuitous hatred of the time and the fact that, um, let's say they got a, I can't remember where, but they say there were, what, seven types of Pharisees and only two were righteous and five were unrighteous. We'll talk about that more some other time. That's, dang. Uh, but they, they count their roots as being among the Pharisees. But this teacher-disciple relationship was very intimate. The disciples were supposed to emulate everything about their master from the way he taught to what he taught and to do um, to just do as he did. So if you see disciples doing or not doing something, then the blame goes on Yeshua. That was the mindset. Um, they wouldn't do things that didn't reflect his beliefs and his way of doing things. I mean, at least James and John asked before calling down on fire on Samaria, right? If they aren't, if they aren't ritually washing their hands, then he gets why. He gets the blame for their behavior. Um, it's like parents. It's kind of like, oh my gosh, what kind of mother is she that her kids are doing that? 
I had to hear that a few times because my boys were rascals for a while. Actually, for a long while. Okay, my boys are rascals, but at least I don't get calls anymore. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I think that's enough background for now. We'll just hit the rest as we go through. Ah. Okay, so this week we are chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the uh, the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? John's disciples. That's John the Baptist's disciples, of course. And remember, John was arrested back in, one, in chapter 1, verse 14, but his disciples would continue living as their master had taught them. This was a formal relationship. It was built on absolute loyalty that was ongoing even though John was imprisoned by Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Or we're assuming that, because you know, this is, we can't put all this as chronologically, as I've been saying. Mark groups things according to topic. But, um, so this... This was a formal relationship, right? It was ongoing even though John was imprisoned by Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who was in charge of Galilee and Perea across the Jordan. The Pharisees, you know, as there were only five to 6,000 of them in all of Israel at the time, and that's not many. They really were loosely affiliated and bound only by doing the same things in the same way for the most part. You know, they still had lots of debates, which we see recorded in later writings. There were two schools, the uh, school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. In the end, Hillel won out. But anyway, the Pharisees had no authority on their own. Unlike the Sadducean chief priests, who were Roman collaborators, and the Herodians, who were allied with the Roman puppet ruler Herod Antipas. But they were popular with the people. I mean, uh, the Pharisees were popular with the people. <laughs> I don't want you to think I, I was referring back to the uh, Herodians. They, they were not popular with the people. So we have both groups fasting, the Pharisees and John's disciples. But nowhere is it even hinted at why or what time of the year this is. Nada, as opposed to, you know, when they were talking about the fishing, we kind of knew what time of year it was. So let's assume it's not important why they're fasting. People came to Yeshua. I mean, it was obviously not important to Mark. Either that or he expected everyone to know. There, we just don't know. People came to Yeshua, not to John's disciples, not to the Pharisees. They asked him why his disciples weren't fasting like the others were. Notice something. They aren't saying, why aren't you fasting like we do? Hey, at least this group is actually challenging Yeshua to his face, right? And the question isn't an inherently moral one, because we don't know why the fasting is taking place, but we can reasonably expect that not everyone is doing it. And I want to point out something important here. Fasting twice a week is the luxury of wealthy men who aren't working hard in the weather all day, okay? People who actually know hunger aren't out there fasting twice a week. 
They're eating very little every day and just trying to stay alive. That gets lost in this sometimes. But you got to know that the poverty in the first century among the Jews was horrific. Actually, in the Roman Empire in general, unless you were very rich. I also want you to remember that, according to John, the, the, not John the Baptist, the apostle, or the writer of the Gospel of John, at least two of Yeshua's disciples had once been John's disciples. So they had changed allegiance and adopted a new way of doing things. Not that they betrayed John or that they um, turned their backs on him. It's just that they they joined with who John said was a greater teacher, all right, greater person. This was what John wanted. This is what John came for. Verse 19, And Yeshua said to them, the people who asked, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So does Yeshua say that the Pharisee or that, that the disciples of John and the Pharisees are wrong to fast or sinning? No. He only addresses the question that he has asked, namely, why are his disciples not fasting along with the others? Now the question being asked is, why are you in disagreement with them? But the question he answers is different. It's, should the present age involve fasting for the companions of the bridegroom? The question he answers is about the appropriateness of certain actions at certain times by certain people, which will also come up next week in the fourth controversy dialogue, and, the, and it'll also be the third food controversy. This is the second. It's not a commentary on fasting being inappropriate in general. I mean... Yeshua fasted for 40 days and nights, so he was certainly not an anti-fasting advocate. <laughs> um, this is not a debate. This is just an explanation of why not now for these people in particular. Not a condemnation of the practice in general. Uh, sometimes we want everything to just be black and white, you know. The disciples of John and the Pharisees are not being labeled as doing anything wrong. So, Fasting is not condemned, but to fast at a wedding would be a grave insult to the host. Utterly inappropriate behavior. Other people in town not invited to the wedding could fast to their heart's content, but those called to witness the joy of the union would be shaming the host by refusing to join in the festivities. Paul says in Romans that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't do a comedy routine at a funeral or mourn at a baby shower, right? It's disrespectful, and beyond that, it's just plain old cruel behavior. I'm actually going to quickly tell you a story about my wedding. During the middle of the reception, my husband's uncle got a call that a family member who was not in attendance had unexpectedly and tragically died. Word quietly spread among those who absolutely had to know and not anyone else. Mark and I didn't even know until the next day. Some people just quietly walked out of the wedding because they were too upset to celebrate, and quite understandably, right? What did happen is that the wedding celebration was not compromised. We have something very similar here. There is a time and a place for everything. There was absolutely nothing wrong with them leaving my wedding to mourn. How awful it would have been for them to stick around and pretend to be happy. 
right? I wouldn't have wanted that. In the same way, turning the wedding into a funeral would have also been wrong. I mean, okay, if the person had died right then and there at my wedding, it would have been an entirely different story and mourning would have been inevitable and appropriate, but that was not the case. So, Yeshua addresses the situation with his disciples who are eating and drinking. So this is the second food controversy, as I, as I mentioned before, while others are abstaining for unknown reasons. The reason, he claims, is because this is a time of joy and celebration. Of course, in hindsight, because we've got a narrator, we know that they're in the presence of the divine Messiah. The answer to all of Israel's prayers for salvation and deliverance and the fulfillment of the Isianic new exodus is the promised Yahweh warrior. There has never been such a great cause for joy in the history of the world, not before and not since. How can anyone fast? Well, if they knew. In the Psalms of Solomon, this is apocryphal book, 3.8, the reason for fasting is explained as, he maketh atonement for sins of ignorance by fasting and afflicting his soul. And the Lord counteth guiltless every pious man in his house. Uh, elsewhere, in, like in the book of Esther, we see fasting participated in during times of great mourning and sadness in order to divert disaster and to petition God. Although um, the bridegroom imagery is very popular in Christian circles, it appears only as a metaphor. Um, it, or in this metaphor, sorry, which appears in all three Gospels and once in John. In other words, we're really overdoing it on our romance-obsessed culture, okay? Because of our romance-obsessed culture. Not too much should be read into the parable of the bridegroom because Yeshua was describing what the kingdom is like, not what he is like. I was actually rather shocked when I realized how little material a whole lot of artwork is actually based on. We shouldn't try to go too far beyond the simple metaphor here. Yeshua says this situation is like that situation where you cannot mourn at a wedding. So word picture. When we see words such as like or as or other types of personification at work, these are simply modes of comparison, and we have to be careful about putting too much of what we want and think we need to see into the text. You know, what's there is awesome. Uh, verse 20. Now, I know some of you guys are mad at me, but don't be mad. It's just I'm pointing out what's in the word, okay? And it's my opinion. I didn't, you know, I'm not destroying your faith or anything. So verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Okay. Back to doing things doing appropriate things at the appropriate time. Here we have what is probably the first veiled reference to his death in this gospel. Um, at a wedding feast, the guests leave, and uh, not the bridegroom. The bridegroom and the bride stay. We shouldn't mistake this for a modern wedding where the happy couple leave early. And the partying goes on, so, so this would have sounded odd to them. Why would the bridegroom be taken away from his wedding? We know, of course, but they didn't know. You know, it's whole narrator business. I think everyone was just looking at him like, you totally made sense until, like, that last bit, you know, whatever. Um, but as I said, 
we know what was going to happen, and, and they would have had a few days of absolute, you know, despair and sorrow, um, because they didn't know after he was crucified. Um, now, we get to the very first parable or mini parable in the Gospel of Mark here. This one confuses a lot of people because it gets inappropriately combined with other stories concerning wine. If you'll recall last year's episode on parables, you cannot swap the meaning of parable images from one to another. Seed doesn't always mean the same thing, nor does wine. Each parable stands by itself. If one symbol only meant one thing, there'd be a lot of really messed up stuff in the Bible. Um, oh, we are at the break here. Anyway, we'll be back to talk about doves, actually. Just a minute. Welcome back to, um, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to Character in Context, where this week we are talking about the wedding, the wineskin, and the torn cloak. And this is a, a parable that a lot of people just scratch their head over, and some of the reason is because they take imagery from other places in the Bible. You know, wine can mean more than one thing. The sea actually means a lot more than one thing if you look at different sections of scripture, and you know, and we're going to talk right now about doves, because doves are one of the ones that I've seen abused. Oh, seeds, too. Seeds get abused. We talked about that one in the parable of the four soils, but that last year, a long time ago. But uh, so let's look at doves. And before we get into this mini parable, Noah released a dove from the ark. Big news flash, right? Now, you knew that. You knew that. And, um... Psalm 74, the downtrodden of Israel are compared to a dove. In the Song of Solomon, the bride is compared to a dove, who and her eyes are also compared to a dove. In Isaiah and Nahum, doves are associated with mourning. Jeremiah and Ezekiel compare people escaping destruction to doves. Hosea calls doves silly and lacking in sense. And Yeshua calls them innocent but not wise. You know, uh, then, of course, the Gospels compare the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, to a dove. Now, you see all these inconsistent images, each true in their own way as a comparison, as a metaphor or a simile, but not something where you can plug and play, making every dove image to be an image of Ephraim, as Hosea does, or every dove's silly, or every dove's, you know... Um, it's not reading the Bible as an ancient text when we want everything to line up nicely. Sometimes a dove is just a dove, like with Noah. Um, but it's the why I hate dream books. You know, they got uh, books about interpreting dreams, and they'll have like a glossary where if you see a dove in a dream, it means this. It's like well, they left out like a ton. Plus, they don't tell you that depending on the culture you were brought up in, um, something can mean entirely different things, because God speaks to us in our language, not the language of 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. He talks to us culturally. All right. Although sometimes he will use biblical language, depending on how familiar we are with it. Now, let's look at this mini parable. 
But uh, Luke adds an extra verse, so we're going to combine that here. Uh, verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. For the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And Luke adds, And no one after drinking the old desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, the, um, the first thing we need to understand is this is clearly saying that men are to patch their own cloaks because it says no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment if he does. Okay? Or either that or it's saying, don't let men repair their own clothes. Ladies are going to do it wrong. <laughs> that terrible? Okay, I hope you're laughing. <laughs> anyway, so uh, back to the parable here. On the surface, this is a big no-duh, right? I mean, of course. You don't sew a new piece of cloth onto an old garment, and of course you don't put new wine and grape juice into old wineskins. Nowadays, we don't do too much patching because we just toss out the old and buy something new because clothing is so cheap when it's made for, with the equivalent of slave labor in third world countries, but they weren't so quick to throw out anything that was old. Despite this, they would have patched old with something else old, with old scraps. As for wine... Um, when it's poured freshly pressed into goat skins, which is super gross, um, the uh, grape juice would react and ferment and swell the skin, which would expand because that's what skin does when we feed it too much. Not, I mean, not that I know this from any personal experience. Oh my gosh, no. Um, <laughs> I'm still the same size five I was when I got married or... Maybe twice that, uh, you know, but that's beside the point. Um, anyway, wineskins can't be reused because they dry out and they get brittle. Apply a bit of pressure to an old one and it will split and burst. Again, people are saying, no duh. What does this have to do with fasting? Is fasting the patch or the cloak? It can't be the wine, so is fasting the wineskin? But Yeshua isn't doing any of that. He's talking about something bigger. He's talking about the kingdom. He's always talking about the kingdom, right? But to see that, we have to also include the wedding story in the parable. And it usually gets excluded. Three metaphors about doing what is inappropriate at entirely the wrong time. You don't mourn during times of joy. You don't tear a piece off of something that is new while trying to salvage something that's old. And you don't try to force something explosive into something that was not built to withstand the pressure. Or it was, at one point, built to withstand the pressure. But it's not there anymore. It, it can't be used for that anymore. It's gotten old and brittle. So, even though, as Luke adds, people hate change. That's why he added that after drinking the old wine, no one wants the new because the old is good enough. That's how we all are, right? Comfort zone, theology, comfort zone, everything. And actually, I'm going to bring up something that just happened today, and this was so disturbing. A friend of mine, Dina Dye, she's, um, 
She's very politically active. Um, she's a wonderful teacher, wonderful believer, Messianic Jew. And um, she was talking about some of her disappointment over the New Mexico primary. New Mexico is where she lived. And um, how we got to keep fighting, right? Now, I absolutely agree. And, and somebody commented that if you really believe your Bible, you're not going to be upset by these things. Um, the Lord's coming back soon. Um, and this is all according to his plan. But I, I responded to her because I don't really think she was thinking about what she was saying. Okay. And so I wasn't saying it mean or anything. I was just saying, I said, well, good thing that, you know, every generation for the past 2000 years has been utterly convinced. Paul was utterly convinced that their generation was the last one and that Yeshua was coming any day now. They all thought it. But fortunately, we've got these amazing people throughout history, like um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce, who say, no, we occupy right now. And as long as somebody is suffering right now, as long as there are oppression right now, as long as there is whatever right now, we are required as believers to relieve that oppression, to um, to create new laws, to create new situations, to release people from suffering. Because as we've been seeing, this is what Yeshua did. This was his battle against the demonic. We don't give up. We don't give up. Um, And I mean, that's like, that's like saying the old wine is good enough. You know, the way things have always been, it's working out well for me, and I know Yeshua's coming any day now, but everyone's always been wrong about that. We need to assume that he's not coming back for another thousand years, and we need to relieve people's suffering right now. Do whatever we can, and if it takes 10 years, if it takes 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 100 years, we've got to be part of the solution. We don't just sit by and allow people to um, suffer while we try and write it out. Uh-uh. Uh-uh, 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 Yeshua didn't. We don't do it. Although we've got to do it through love, the way Yeshua did it. Anyway, the gospel, the kingdom of God, in the person of Yeshua, is finally invading the wretched existence of his impoverished, beleaguered, oppressed people, the Jews. Okay, they've been praying for salvation, this deliverance, this change. But whenever heaven invades earth, things on earth have to radically change, Right? Yeshua didn't come because everything was hunky-dory as long as the Romans were gone. The overthrow of the Seleucids out of Israel and the installation of the Hasmonean priest kings was proof that Jewish self-rule was just as or even more oppressive and murderous than foreign rule. It takes a special kind of psychopath to starve his mother and brothers in prison, but Aristobulus I did just that, just so he could be king instead of his brother. Alexander Janaeus had 800 Pharisees crucified just for opposing him and had their wives and children slaughtered before their eyes as they, as they hung on those crosses. The Romans stepped in and put Herod in charge, and he was a monster, but so were his predecessors. The hatred continued between the Pharisees and Sadducees, um, Alexander Janaeus sided with the Sadducees. It was so terrible Talmud and Yoma 9b called the first century a time of gratuitous, senseless hatred. You're probably getting tired of me talking about that, but what I'm saying is historically everyone realizes how horrible it was in the first century. It was a time of terrible hatred and oppression, not just against the Jews from the Romans, but in terms of Jew versus Jew and Jew versus Gentile. Um, 
Hellenism-inspired factions, and factions uh, went to war with one another for supremacy over doctrine and beliefs. There were assassins, the Sicarii, you know, wandering Jerusalem during the feast and carrying out political assassinations. Yeshua was born into this horrific mess, into a time of disease and death and hatred and demonic torment. This was the old cloak. This was the old wineskin. This is the world as it was before the cross. They wanted the Romans gone. Okay, The Jews wanted the Romans gone. Who could blame them? But they needed new hearts and a new way of looking at God's laws and his intentions. Or having the Romans out of the way would be meaningless. The old was not good enough. They would still suffer under Jewish leadership if the Romans were gone. They would probably plunge right back into the brutal civil war that had marked those Hasmonean years and uh, was the reason they installed Herod, put an end to it. There's a reason why Yeshua was so controversial, and it wasn't because he was throwing away God's laws, but because he was bringing an honesty and integrity to them that would blow the current system apart. He wasn't playing ball. Not with the Sadducees or the Pharisees, and certainly not with the Herodians. The isolationist, anti-Gentile policies would have to be a thing of the past because they would be pouring into the kingdom, as Yahweh promised in Isaiah. Now, the Pharisees had, under Greco-Roman influence, turned Torah away from being a way of wisdom and life and a system that was meant to show us how to love God and others, really to protect others from ourselves. Um, and they turned it into a legalistic system of observance of minutiae on one hand and the creation of some seriously bad loopholes on the other. We talked about this in um, my series on the seven woes last year. What must we do to, in order to say we are observing this commandment on one hand versus how can we create loopholes for ourselves to get out of some of the more difficult circumcision of the heart type requirements? Um, you know, like I said, we talked about this last year. The maddening demands coupled with some disturbing loopholes that allowed people to break their oaths and vows while the minutiae of cleansing bowls and cups based on whether or not there were handles and all that sort of thing, okay? Now, don't think I'm saying that every Pharisaic ruling was one of the evil traditions of men. Um, I shared in my Hanukkah program last year how Yeshua only used that term when calling out behavior that was oppressive to others. Using legal loopholes related to the Korban re regulations, like and that's, Korban is offerings, to keep from having to support parents in their old age. Of course, religion can be a positive or a negative thing. Yeshua gave us religion ruled by the two great and violet uh, principles of interpreting Torah. Is it loving to God? Is it loving to others? The Pharisees, um, some of them in some ways, gave lip service to that in favor of trapping God with the words of the Bible in such a way they could justify some things that broke the law to love neighbor and respect parents, if only they could find another verse that gave them an out. And before you get all huffy, we still do that, right? <laughs> all these things, it's like, I see myself in every bit of garbage these people pull. I hope you do too, because we're supposed to. Um, part of being a disciple of Yeshua is in allowing him to show us 
where our wineskins are still old and where we are hoarding the old wine of our beastly nature. When he fills those old flesh areas with a new wine, they begin to crack. And in my own life, whenever I start feeling that happening, I call it a boiling out. The refinement heats up and I can feel the pain. And sometimes those around me can too. Sorry. Sorry, guys. You know, until one day, whatever it is that needs to go, you know, whatever it is that gets in the way of my loving God and others gets revealed and shown in all its ugliness. And God gives me the choice to keep it or to keep, get rid of it. I remember when he did that with racism. Gosh, how many years ago was that? I don't know. But I can no longer uh, ignore it. Once he does that, even if I wasn't really entirely aware of it before, or I didn't see it as a problem, it's funny how blind we are. Was it Psalm Psalm 19 says, um, who can know their faults? Um, oh, I can't remember. I was just quoting it the other day, but, you know, if I don't do it all the time, it's it's gone. <sighs> oh, Lord, cleanse me of my faults. Yeah, who can know that what man can know the error of his ways? Lord, cleanse me of my hidden faults. There we go. Um, you know, so sometimes we aren't really aware of what unloving, uh, unloving jerks we are, which is, you know, what that verse is about. I mean, that's what this walk is about, right? Submitting to the fire and seeing what boils out and being unendingly shocked at how carnal we still are. But I thought I was so righteous. No, no, not really. <laughs> But the king, it seems like the closer we get, the farther away we are. Oh my gosh. Uh, but the kingdom of heaven, which the gospel told us was invading the earth in the person of Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus Christ, like Aslan. So the kingdom of heaven, like Aslan, is good but not tame. You know, now there's an excellent metaphor, courtesy of C.S. Lewis. It is not a patch to be applied to our otherwise carnal natures. It is not new wine that we can expect to be safely stowed away without doing damage to the person whom we once were. It's not compatible with who who we were and are and will never stop. You know, it, it, and it's it's that new wine's not going to stop its work until we're bursting at the seams with its byproduct, which is love. It's like no, 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 no. The new wine is explosive. The kingdom is explosive. It's demanding. It seeks out and conquers that in our lives which is incompatible. It tears. It bursts out. And it's utterly inappropriate for us to prefer that old flesh nature saying, It's good enough. Yes. We cling to the old like a blankie. You know, toddler with the blankie. My kids didn't do that. I was so grateful. But my little brother did. I don't know why some kids do and some kids don't, but, you know, we desire that uh, comfortable old cloak and that old familiar wine, but it has to go. And so desperate are we to keep it that we take a little bit of gospel here and there and apply it to the comfortable parts of our lives. Or just as terrible, we settle for external obedience so that we can look good while what is inside has ceased to live, like settled old wine. It's not doing anything. May taste good to us, but it's not alive anymore, okay? The people in Yeshua's day wanted to remain the same. And, you know, don't we all? 
They just wanted to get rid of the Romans and believed that would be enough to usher in a new age of living by their own laws in peace. But the nightmarish Hasmonean times, after the death of John Hyrcanus, should have been proof positive that such an alteration would only be a regime change. God intended to change the world from within, one person at a time. Sometimes thousands and thousands of people at a time. The cloak, as it was, couldn't be patched, and the wineskin had served its purpose. Neither could handle the kingdom of heaven on its own terms and survive radically unchanged. Everyone was going to have to reevaluate and choose where to put their trust. Would it be in the new thing promised by Yahweh in Isaiah 42, 43, and 48, or would they just cling to wanting their comfortable old hope of the same old, same old, only with their external circumstances changed? Remember, in Isaiah, how Yahweh was repeatedly saying that he was going to do a new thing. Oh, Isaiah 42, 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah 48, 6. You have heard. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. So... Yeshua is ushering in a new age, yes, an age where Yahweh has once more intervened for the salvation of his people. But, like the exiles who balked at the idea of pagan Cyrus being the arbiter of their deliverance, oh, the horror, you know, resulting in only 5% returning to Israel when commanded to do so by Yahweh himself through Isaiah, the people to whom Yeshua was being revealed, those who heard him preach, who saw great healings and exorcisms and miracles, would they accept this messenger? He at least was a fellow Jew of the royal line of David. Cyrus was a really hard pill to swallow. Maybe Yeshua would be easier to accept? Of course, we all know from our own lives that God cannot possibly make it easy enough for our carnal natures to submit willingly to the new things he wants to do in our lives. We all want his blessings, but on our terms. And pain-free at that. Uh, we want him on our side, on our side. We don't understand that he needs to be on everyone's side. <laughs> and it is we who are to be on his side. Folks never really change, right? Same old battle. Only the day of the battle is constantly being renewed. So, what have you been content and even desperate to patch up so that it looks like the ugliness is gone when it's actually alive and well? Maybe only your family sees it? Maybe only anonymous people on the internet get an earful of it? Oh, yeah, I bet yeah, you guys have seen Hopefully you haven't done it. Um... I did a long time ago. <laughs> Try not to do it anymore. Maybe uh, only you know it because, you know, maybe you only know it's there because it's stomped down well enough. 
Maybe you've given up all but just a little bit of advice? Goodness, I know from my own life, and this is hilarious, that you can give up every food that is bad for you and still be a glutton on the healthy stuff. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Some folks give up all physical manifestations of pornography while still engaging in, in a very ribald fantasy life, and that was me for years after giving up porn. I gotta lie. I call it it's better, but it ain't good. It's still bad. You know, we like to adapt our sins instead of getting rid of them entirely, right? It's And the really terrible thing is, it's like with the thought life, okay? Like, we pretend that God can't know our thoughts. Like, somehow we can think things, and because we're not doing it, he's, he's like, clueless. No. No. He knows. He knows. No, thank God he knows what our thoughts are, or, or he'd be satisfied with our external stuff, which can look good, but, you know, like Paul said, Paul kept the Torah blamelessly. I, I believe him, but he was a murderer. He was a murderer in his heart. And finally, one day, you know, when he was feeling really zealous, it just started to bubble out. This desire, um, this murderous desire to, um, and, and he thought he was righteous. He thought he was doing it in the name of God, in the name of his religion. I'm, you know, we... I say this a lot too. We like to see ourselves as the heroes of our own stories, but man, I'll tell you some nothing can be less true. I am not the hero of my own story. You know who the hero of my story is? Yeshua and all the people who put up with me all those years with loving kindness. All right. I am not as good as they are because I am not patient. Anyway, so uh, next week we get to the fourth controversy. Um,